Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. I'm Keith Caulfield, Senior Director of Charts at Billboard. And I'm Katie Atkinson, Billboard's Executive Digital Director, West Coast. How's it going, Katie? It's going great. How about yourself, Keith? I'm all right. Um, I'm all right. We're doing a very democratic show today. We went to the people, straight to the people. To power to the people. <laughs> uh, because, as always, the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. This week, we've got a special edition of The Pop Shop where we'll be answering a few listener-submitted questions about the charts. And playing a round of chart trivia-based quiz, Katie. Uh-oh. I thought this was just for the people. <laughs> Maybe the people want to see me tortured. <laughs> Who doesn't love a good round of uh, quiz, Katie? I know Katie loves it. I do. I mean, I love trivia, but I also like when you do trivia in public, it's terrifying. Katie, Katie at work used to have a um, trivial pursuit, a book of oh, trivial pursuit got, questions. I still have it. It's still uh, on my desk. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh wait, we need to break that puppy yeah, out. Yeah, we should. Why didn't bring? Why didn't we bring that in here? We could just get a read from oh, that book. <laughs> yeah, just read all the pink questions. Who, who, who needs notes? We could just uh, yeah read all the pink questions. Uh, anyway, uh, but we'll get all to that. We'll get to that in a second. Quiz Katie. But first, <laughs> but first. Before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider so you won't miss an episode. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit Billboard.com slash podcasts. All right. Well, before we get to the the Quiz Katie element of the show, which I think I've built it up a bit too much. <laughs> I literally there's literally there's one Quiz Katie question. So let's not get crazy. Um, we wanted to go through the uh, uh, ask the Pop Shop mailbag to see what questions we have. And our very first question is from King Beehive on Twitter. I wonder what this is going to be about. Oh, who, God. who asks? Who? I wonder. What in the world could they possibly be asking about? How iconic is Beyonce getting a top 10 hit 25 years into her solo career? Okay, presumably, they mean Break My Soul going top 10 on the Hot 100. Yes. And what they mean is 25 years after Destiny's Child hit the Hot 100 in 1997. Yes. Not the 20 years since Beyonce made her solo debut, I think, in 2002. This is since Beyonce was in our, you know, collective consciousness. But they specifically said solo career. Okay, okay, you're right, you're right. But, I see. But I think what they mean is 25 years since Destiny's Into Child. her music career. Yeah. Yeah. We'll forgive the solo part. All right, well, I think the best comparison, <laughs> naturally, is to Diana Ross. Of the Supremes. We've mentioned her in uh, tandem with Beyonce before. Yeah, but we haven't done sort of the math here. True. So the Supremes debuted on the Hot 100 in 1962, got its first number one of 12 in 1964, and then Ross left the group in January of 1970. She immediately got her first solo Hot 100 hit that April with Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand. But if we added 25 years to 1962... Where would that put us? Well, it would be 1987. Was Ross still getting top tens in 1987 on the Hot 100? No. In fact, her last Hot 100 hit as of the recording of this show was in 1986 with Chain Reaction, which peaked at number 66. I feel like this is a really great comparison. This is something that this this is a great comparison. 
And I think this does not diminish Diana Ross's no, legacy. But it does show just how, to King Beehive's point, iconic it is that Beyonce is getting a top 10 25 years in. As we'll see from the other artists that we talk about here, because um, I have many more examples, most artists have a kind of moment in time where their creative output happens to uh, connect with the public at large. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that, that, that sort of popular success can last for a few years. It can last for five, ten. If you are like up in the legendary stratosphere, it, can last, century. it can last for multiple decades. Maybe half a century. That is rare. Yeah. Um, to have that kind of mainstream pop singles success. Yeah. Um, so clearly, though Diana Ross, who just headlined Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah, uh, and had a song with Tame Impala. <laughs> like, you know, currently has a song with Tame Impala in The Minions, The Rise of Gru. Yep. Um, she is still legendary, iconic. Yeah. Has she gotten a top down on the Hot 100 recently? No. And so what about if we're talking about a group... And then uh, becoming a solo artist. What about somebody like Paul McCartney, you know, after the Beatles? Yeah, I mean, I think that's another natural comparison because we think of Diana and the Supremes. You think of, well, what about all the different Beatles and all four of them? What did they go on to yeah. do? So Paul's the best example because he's had the most um, chart success out of all four of them. Sure. Um, the Beatles debuted on the Hot 100 in 1964. So 25 years after that would be 1989. At that point, Paul was still getting Hot 100 hits, just not top 10s. He was last in the top 10 at that point in 1986 with Spies Like Us. Paul would eventually return to the top 10 in 2015 with his collaboration with Rihanna and Kanye West, or Ye, on the number four peaking for five seconds. So that's 50 plus years after... The Beatles made their chart debut. That was a fluke. <laughs> oh, obviously, yes. Like, had he not been on a Rihanna and Kanye West track, he yeah. would have not been top 10. But it yeah. still counts. It counts. Um, and could, you know, if Paul was on an Ariana Grande song, sh they could probably <laughs> have a top 10 hit together. Okay, what about some other long-charting superstars like M Michael Jackson, Madonna, Janet Jackson, Elvis, Barbara Streisand, did they have a 25-year span of top 10 hits? Um, well, Elvis's career is interesting out of all of those because it predated, it's the start of it predated the Hot 100's launch in 1958. Right. But he started charting on the Hot 100 predecessor chart, which was our single sales chart, in 1956. So... If we added 25 years to 1956, that would get us to 1981. Oh. And by that point, Elvis oh. was no longer with us because he died in 1977. That said, his last top 10 on the Hot 100 was in 1972 with the number two peaking Burning Love. Right. Um, which is weird because you think Elvis was so huge for... Such a concentrated period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Beatles were. Yeah. Like the Supremes were. Yeah. Um, but, like, they lived many lives within those, like, 
you know, 15-year periods, 10-year periods. Had Elvis not passed away, he likely would have still been a very relevant superstar performer in the 80s. And oh. imagine— I mean, imagine, look what happened with, like, a little less conversation, you know, long after his death. Yeah. Um, as for Michael, the Jackson 5, the group that brought us Michael Jackson, debuted on the Hot 100 in late 1969. I think it was, like, December or November of 1969 with the number one hit, I Want You Back. Let's just add 25 years to 1970. It'll be easier that way. So that takes us to 1995. And that year, Jackson scored back-to-back top tens on the Hot 100 with the double-sided single Scream and Mm -hmm. Childhood, which peaked at number five. Of course, Scream is a duet with his sister Janet. And the number one hit, You Are Not Alone. Michael would hit the top ten once more in his lifetime with the number ten peaking You Rock My World. You Rock My World, you know you did. In 2001. He uh, died in 2009. And uh, for Barbara Streisand, well, she debuted on the Hot 100 in 1964 with People. 25 years after that would take us to 1989. By then, Streisand hadn't been in the top 10 since 1981 with What Kind of Fool, which was a duet with Barry Gibb. That said, as iconic as Barbara Streisand was and is, she wasn't always a big, straight-ahead, poppy-pop top 40 singles person. No, she more had more success on our albums charts, right? Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Um she was very like sort of traditional in many ways, recording big ballads and standards, adult contemporary thing, you know, songs which didn't always conform to, you know, like what was happening on top 40 radio. Um, still, Do you think uh, Leah Michelle will take people to uh, the Hot 100 <laughs> in her Funny Girl revival role? What, what, I mean, there's a whole <laughs> going to be a whole new cast album just with Leah Michelle. <laughs> um, still Streisand had plenty of Hot 100 hits, 41, in fact, with 12 of them hitting the top 10. Okay, so back to the 1989, which is 25 years after the 1964 debut of Streisand on the chart. After 1989, she did get one more Hot 100 hit with 1996's I Finally Found Someone, which was a duet with Brian Adams from Streisand's film, The Mirror Has Two Faces. I'm so happy we're finally talking about The Mirror Has Two Faces on the pop shop. It's it's a favorite. Really? Oh, really? Like, my, me and my friends, like, loved it growing Never up. Never seen it. Oh, it's delightful. Before we get, before we get into delightful. it, the, the song peaked at number eight in December of 1996. <laughs> I've never seen it, but it has Lauren Bacall in it. You Lauren Bacall was nominated for an Oscar, and she lost the Oscar that year, right? And Jeff Bridges is, is the, like, love interest, and he's a... Love he, interest of Streisand. I think it might. I. I maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly, but he is like a professor, and he dates like you know these beautiful young women, and one of those women is like like Elle McPherson or something. Like they have an actual supermodel playing like one of his young gorgeous girlfriends. Okay. Barbara has a great makeover. I love a makeover scene in a movie. Great makeover. And is Lauren Bacall her mother? Yes. Very judgmental mother. Yes, I need to watch it again. I I just remember loving it as a kid. Hmm. It's like something for like middle-aged women and apparently Katie at age 12. <laughs> for whatever reason. It's like that's a I still haven't seen The Godfather. Yeah. But you've seen The Mirror, the mirror has, has two, two faces, faces and multiple times. And Back to School. And ba- don't worry, I've seen Back to School and Summer School starring Mark Harmon as well. <laughs> How is it? I've you, seen you hadn't so even been born when, when Back to movies, School and Summer School So was many out. weird movies. Well, it was whatever they replayed on HBO when I was growing up. I guess The Godfather is a little bit too sort of 
adult adult and violent yeah, yeah and i think my parents loved it they might have even owned it but they weren't like saying hey let's watch godfather well, yeah. on friday night with pizza exactly and then i right. just haven't gotten around to it um all right well let's let's <laughs> let's round out this yeah. this this, uh, this question we're, we're back to the question that's about oh, right. the 25 oh, we, year thing. we weren't talking about movies <laughs> i don't know we can get there this is uh, a, a rambling show <laughs> so as for madonna and janet two of uh, our faves Madonna debuted on the Hot 100 in late 1983. So if we add 25 years to, let's just call it 1984, that gets us to 2009. That year, Madonna had just had a top 10 in 2008 with Four Minutes featuring Justin Timberlake and Timbaland. And since 2009, Madonna's only had one more top 10 hit with the number 10 peaking song, Give Me All Your Lovin', featuring Nicki Minaj and M.I.A. As for Janet, she debuted on the Hot 100 in December of 1982. And if we add 25 to 1983, that would get us to 2008. However, Janet hasn't been in the top 10 since 2001's Someone to Call My Lover. Mm. So I think any way you slice this, it is... Beyonce is pretty iconic for doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if I would ever quite use the word iconic because I I just don't. But <laughs> I think it's pretty. We've always we we've known that Beyonce has been sort of a unique and indi- individual force, both as a creative artist as as well as a commercially successful artist. And as we've as in terms of the names we've just mentioned, she absolutely stands alongside all of those artists we've just named. Yeah. And I think that certainly if you look at someone like, say, Lady Gaga, who only came onto the scene in 2008, she will probably most certainly be charting hits, you know, 25 years after her debut. Yeah. Ariana Grande arguably will, too. So it could arguably will Drake. And that's why we'll all the— revisit this question, King Beehive, in a few decades. <laughs> yeah. We could be talking about all those artists in the same breath as everyone else, just as they continue to break all those other records of all those other artists. Right. All right, so let's move on to our next question. Jamie Wu on Twitter asks, could we ever see a shift to minutes listened to, similar to how video streaming has moved to minutes watched? For example, Break My Soul, there's that song again, was streamed X million minutes and using that as a metric. I thought this was a really smart question because I think a lot of people wonder on streaming whether, you know, somebody fully listens to a song or whether that's counted. So I think it's an interesting question. Right. It's like, is everyone just listening to something for 45 seconds and then skipping it? Right. Or, yeah, I don't know. Are there like, you know, fans were just like starting a song over and over again? Although, to be fair, I guess it would still be minutes listened to. If you keep starting the same thing over again, you're still listening to the same amount of minutes. Is that why they're asking that? Anyway, continue. I mean, maybe this person is asking specifically because it's like, you know, is a more is a more important metric the amount of time something someone spent with something Mm -hmm. versus, oh, I only listened to half of it and I just moved on. Right, right. Um, Anyway, well, we're not trying to read your mind, Jamie. Sorry. Sorry, Jamie. So, well, right now we use the number of times something was streamed or purchased in our chart measurements. So the more times something is bought, the more it counts. The same with how many times something is streamed. Radio airplay isn't exactly the same, but it's similar, at least on the Hot 100. So on the Hot 100, 
um, and all of our hybrid charts that use airplay streams and sales like hot country songs, hot Latin songs, we take airplay audience uh, estimates where based upon uh, radio station ratings information, you know, estimates on how, how many people are listening to a radio station at a certain time of day, we cross-reference that data with when a song is played on that particular station. Right. So obviously, if you're listening to Z100 in New York City, one of the highest rated uh, radio stations. At 8 in the morning. At 8 in the morning, more people are going to be listening right. to that song than it would be in, say, Boise, Idaho at Middle midnight night. on a Wednesday night. Correct. So that's how we figure out when we talk about how many millions of audience impressions, that's where that comes from. Yeah. It's kind of like when people talk about... Um, you know, TV ratings and how many, you know, sort of the audience reach of something, mm -hmm. how many people, like how many families and people and households are watching something. It's like, well, you lose a lot of estimations there. Right. We also do have radio charts and airplay charts that are strictly based on how many times a song was played on the radio across a particular format. So maybe it had 422 plays on the radio this week. It just depends on which chart you're looking at. Um, but Jamie is asking, would we ever change the way we measure streams on the charts and tweak the charts to reflect how long something was listened to? It's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Billboard is always open to considering new data points for streaming. However, most streaming services limit the scope of data that they provide for public mm. usage. So, so you don't have this granular of data right now. I don't think so. Yeah, interesting. I don't think Luminate does. And like another another thing that I would love to have that we don't have is, let's say, to discern where the stream origin is. Mm -hmm. Did you click the play button on today's top hits on Apple, or did you click the play button on a single page somewhere else? Right. Or on an album page? Yeah, did you come from a curated playlist, or did you go directly to Beyonce's page? Right. Yeah. Was this something, did you pre-save this album, and, mm -hmm. you, and you played it from your, you know, like, where is, and we don't have that. Now, I think labels can see that. Interesting. Maybe. But that's not something that goes, I believe, to like, hmm. I can't access that with Luminate. Huh. So, I mean, I think concurrent to all this, there's another interesting point to ponder. What if you thought of this question in terms of sales? Would you give someone extra credit, let's say, on the charts, if they bought a double album? Or if the album was priced higher? Mm-hmm. Should a box set that costs $50 give someone extra credit on the Billboard 200 versus an album that costs $10? I'm sure $10? that's been discussed before. I mean, it's kind of... Especially double albums, like... It's kind of the way the RAAA does their certifications. You know, they give you extra credit if you have longer albums. Yeah. And so that, that's how there are certain albums that are like 20 times platinum, and they're really like just double albums. Technically 10 times it's platinum. It's technically 10 times yeah. platinum. Yeah. And... For as long as Luminate has been providing us sales information since 1991, a sale is a sale. Yeah. So if you bought the six CD Garth Brooks box set, that is one unit sale. But streaming is different. Streaming now. is different because streaming came on board much more recently, and the the industry itself worked with Luminate and Billboard to kind of find like the right methodology to represent 
what streaming's consumption should be with relation to the charts. It's it's a this is a very fascinating conversation because if you think about obviously the obvious example is Morgan Wallen's Dangerous the double album which is a blockbuster album has 30 songs on it. It's right. exactly 30 songs. If you were to use the a sale is a sale theory of olden days or from sales then it's like you take Weezer's, you know, Blue Album that's 10 songs, and it's like would each stream of one of their songs be one-tenth, and each, like, like three songs of Morgan's would equal the same as one song of Weezer's? Like, how would you do that? I don't know the answer. It was, you know, (laughs) think, think right, like, every week on the Billboard 200 albums chart, for example, is... It's a delicate balance of trying to make a lot of kind of different things compare to one another. EPs and K-pop mini albums. You have like a six-song K-pop mini album that sells 40,000 copies on CD because there's collectible pieces of photos and cards inside the box and everyone wants to buy them. Well, how many of those fans are actually buying multiple copies of the same album to Mm -hmm. get all the merchandise inside? Conversely, you have Morgan Wallen charting in the top 10 almost every week since the album has come out because it has 30 songs on it and it is highly streamed. Conversely, you may have a Barbra Streisand 11-song album. Barbra Streisand doesn't stream very well because she is not the typical artist that does stream well. So she's she's having to sell CDs the old-fashioned way. And then, you know, you also then have, say, someone like Machine Gun Kelly, who has a bunch of sort of merchandise box sets with Mm -hmm. T-shirts and CDs inside them. And at the end of the day, we're trying to have this chart that puts all those things together and have them all compete against one another. And even though they're all not exactly the same, but all kind of the same. Right. It's very, it's very difficult. Yeah. And I think unlike, say, how the Billboard 200 was in like, let's just say 1990. Very long time ago, most people listening to this probably were not alive then, but in 1990, the only way that you could listen to music generally was to go out and buy an album or go buy a physical single, unless you turned on the radio. Yep. And so the chart itself was pretty pretty democratic. Most albums were all about 12 songs long, like the vast majority of all the number one albums in the 1980s were about 10, 11, 12 songs long, totally. Yeah. Like you would occasionally have an outlier, like a double album, but generally they were all about the same length. You could only put so many songs on an album because you only had so much space on a vinyl album or so much space on a CD. Right. And so everyone was kind of you know equal to one another. Right. Um, now there is literally no limit. Chris Brown can introduce an album that has 25 songs and reissue it a week later with 35 songs. Yeah, wait, did that happen? It, it, it did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, I've, I've talked enough about uh, that, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, yes. You know, we'll we'll see if we ever get to that point. Right. Okay, let's go to our next question. Uh, Fabian. I think it's Fabiani. Fabiani? Giraneza? Sure. Maybe Giraneza, who knows? On, Giraneza? on Instagram. We'll call you Fabiani. Uh, asks... Why do some outlets say fastest selling instead of best selling in reference to music releases? And does it annoy you as much <laughs> as it does me? Should I let Katie, who is the professional copy editor, talk about this first? We've before, got a pet peeve before, in our midst. 
I never use this phrase, but Katie, do you have any thoughts on this before I start to ramble about it? I mean, when I, I don't know, when I see it, I think of those as being two different things. Fastest selling versus best selling. I think they're two different things. Yeah. So, um, I mean, okay. So it's a phrase that's used when talking about like single week sales records, like when basically a debut week, most likely. Right. I see this a lot in the UK where they're like, you know, Adele is the fastest selling, you know, album. I'm like, you mean like it sold a million copies in a single week and that's more than anyone has done in a single week. Yeah. Right. And so we don't really do that though. No. No. So I hope Fabiani appreciates that we don't do that. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe uh, wherever Fabiani is from, that's what they do there. Yeah. Well, like you said, if it's in the UK, for instance, yeah. I mean, generally when I write editorial around the charts, I stick to saying something like the biggest single week or largest sales week. I don't use I, – well, I don't know. Someone will probably say, look, you used it this once before. <laughs> I generally don't use fastest because in my brain, it suggests a certain speed or velocity or a pace that I don't have details on outside of one individual tracking week or maybe a singular day. But even then, it's like imprecise. And I feel like it's not imprecise. That's not the right word. But it just if I don't it feels weird to use that. I don't know why. Just no, I understand what you're saying. You're saying like if you're if you're talking about a week especially, it's like who knows if all of those sales came in from the first pre-sales in the first hour yeah. or if it came throughout the week, you know, whatever. But I think maybe it's something that's a streaming era thing because if you think about the fastest um, to reach whatever people setting records, on, you know, when when Apple Music or Spotify decides to announce like those sort of granular records, right. like, you know, they uh, were the fastest to hit 1 million listens in in an hour or whatever the 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 record is. Right. When they when they share those things, fast is often part of it because it's like talking about a condensed time. Right. But we don't we don't really do that in our charts. Yeah, we don't. No. Now, if you are the actual entity who has the internal data, if you are Spotify and yeah. you can see like, oh, I see this many people like connecting to our service you in the past hour. You can literally refer to the speed of which <laughs> the record was set. Does Billboard like have we ever done that sort of internally? Like, oh, it's like we it's like when we say have like a big tent pole project that we're launching on Billboard.com and you can absolutely see how many unique visitors we have in like a certain span of time. Do we ever? We don't really hype up our no, we don't, traffic. Do we? No. That's not a thing we do. I mean, we could because we have incredible traffic. <laughs> we could hype it all day. Okay. Um, all right. Should we move to our next question? Yes. So basically, we're saying we agree with you, Fabiani. Um, our next question is from CasemanXP on Twitter. And the question is, what are some of the chart records that will probably never be broken? Thinking of the number of Beatles records that have been or are close to being broken. I think that Drake just broke a Beatles record, like, right after Honestly Nevermind. Um, and full disclosure... This is someone who used to work at Luminate asking this very intelligent chart question. Yeah, when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is such a great question. And I'm like, wait, you used to work at Luminate. And you and you listen to the pop shop. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. Hi, Bob. Um, all right, well, records are meant to be broken. I've, I've, uh, Keith says it in a resigned fashion. <laughs> once I realized that, you know, Madonna's top 10 record was going to be beaten, mm. I, uh, 
I just held on to that and said, you know, it's all right. Records are meant to be broken. <laughs> and, you know, as chart methodologies change over time, as they have in previous decades, you know, over the course of the lifespan of, say, for example, the Hot 100, it arguably becomes easier for certain records to be broken. Now, it doesn't mean that when the record was set, it wasn't an achievement. It just means that a particular feat has been surpassed. So, yes, while some records, like the Beatles record of 19 number one albums on the Billboard 200 and 20 number ones on the Billboard Hot 100, which both still currently stand, seem untouchable now, it will probably only be a matter of time before someone beats even those records. After all, there was a time when nobody thought the Beatles record of having the entire top five on the Hot 100 chart at the same time would ever be matched, and yet Drake did it just a couple years ago. Now, do you foresee a world where, because I think this is the thing that gets brought up a lot, especially with an artist like Drake, a very collaborative artist, somebody who's been featured on a lot of other um, records. Having two different lists of uh, yeah. how many top tens you had as a feature or and how many top like tens. Or just like kind of, you know, making a note of like when and if Drake is the one that surpasses either of these records. It's like, would we say like the group's, you know, sole uh, credited, you know, number ones or something like <laughs> that think, because they didn't have features? I think we've kind of... We haven't gone as far as to do a, here's a list of top tens where the, you know, here's a list of the artists with the most top tens as a lead artist mm-hmm. or co-build, duet, whatever. Yeah. We haven't done that explicitly, yeah. but we have said, I mean, I know I've done this when I've written copy. It's like, you know, so-and-so hits X number, like when, like certainly when Lil Wayne was like really doing it before the streaming era so many of his hits oh my god imagine how many hit hits Lil Wayne would have had if he was like his heyday was in the streaming era yeah oh my gosh it would be the same thing but I you know we have noted like oh you know they've hit 40 you know top 40 hits it's like and to note you know 25 of them or 20 of them were songs that this person you know were featured on someone else's right. track so we have done that i think it would be interesting to note that but at the same time you don't want to diminish someone's no. achievement well we talked about beyonce a lot recently she has number ones One as a number- soloist on the hot 100 but they include her features on ed, ed sheeran's perfect, perfect remix uh megan the stallion savage remix so yes she has 20 top tens as a soloist but not as the lead artist right. basically yeah and you know certainly back in the the 60s 70s 80s early 90s, it was uncommon for there to be collaborative singles like this. Yeah. Like, it was a rare, unique event when Donna Summer and Barbra Streisand got together to do a single. Yeah. Or, you know, when George Michael and Aretha Franklin did a single together. Yeah. They were event records. Yeah. Today, it's just like, oh, so what's today's event record? (laughs) Literally, it happens every day. Right. Um, Although they still do give, like, boosts. I mean, the examples I just named of Beyonce features, she pushed them into the top ten by being, or or to number one, by being on them. I don't think Savage would have been number one had it not been for Beyonce 
kind of taken it to the proverbial next level. Yep. Same thing with Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber added a whole new sort of spin to Despacito, which yep. helped bring it to a new audience. Yep. So these, you know, for the most part, all these things only help elevate and make a song even more popular. So especially when you say like, well, had perhaps Beyonce not been on Savage, it wouldn't have been number one. So shouldn't she get credit for right. it? But you can't have that sort of like discussion about every single one. Right. You know, it's like, no, <laughs> it's like, so anyway, it's in, it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah. You know, because I certainly see a lot of sort of social media chatter, you know, people commenting on kind of Billboard's tweets about, you know, Drake, you know, extends his record for X number of whatever's beyond so-and-so. And a lot of the social media chatter will come from people who have been paying attention to the charts for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, you know, is it really fair to compare like just the sort of instant, like 20 songs from Drake all pop onto the Hot 100 in the same week? He didn't really have to quote unquote work to get those. Right. Meanwhile, Madonna had to like, Make each of those muscle each muscle one each of those thirty eight top and, ten singles. Yeah. They were all physically released. They yeah. all shipped things to retail outlets, yeah. and they made music videos, and they they promoted them to radio. And things like, change, things change, and we always have to remember like the chart changes over time to reflect what's popular at that time. And I'm sure there were probably people in the eighties and the nineties who were saying, "How can we possibly compare how music is consumed today?" to how it was in the 60s with the Supremes and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Even though it was the same chart, I'm sure there were probably people going, I don't know, it's kind of unfair to compare Mariah Carey's, you know, rise on the charts to like what the Beatles were doing in the the 60s because, you know, the the marketplace just worked differently and Mm -hmm. singles moved up and down the chart really fast. I mean, like, yeah, so what if the- And she has the sound scan era versus what they had, yeah. Songs songs in the 90s spent a lot longer on the chart, whereas in the 60s, if you spent more than a dozen weeks on the chart, it was a huge deal just because that's how the chart worked. Right. So- that's why, also, point to ponder, whenever we do those big, biggest top 100 songs of all time recaps, like most recently we did it when we announced that Blinding Lights was the number one song of all time on the Hot 100, we recognize that the charts, uh, the chart itself changes. Yeah. And how songs perform on the chart, depending on what era you're looking at, also changes. Yeah. So we... When we do those recaps of the biggest songs of all time on the Hot 100, we recognize that in the 60s, if you spent 14 weeks on the chart, that's kind of comparable to, say, like, 25 weeks today. Yeah. And it, and now it's very like, okay, Dua Lipa's on the chart for 222 weeks. <laughs> well, would Must that, have been a pandemic. So, <laughs> like, that would be equal to, say, 30 weeks oh in the gosh. 70s. Yeah. So we try to balance everything out when we do this all time. Yep. But anyway, I've now fallen into a rabbit hole. <laughs> Well, now we're going to move on because it's time for the chart stat of the week. Okay, so while today it's commonplace for songs to debut very high on the Billboard Hot 100, thanks to how the chart has changed its methodology over time, we've talked about that already, before 1995, it was absolutely nearly unheard (laughs) of for a song to debut in the top 10. In fact, before the Hot 100 dated June 17, 1995, only three songs debuted in the top 10, and all three were by the Beatles. Wow. Hey Jude was the first song to debut in the top 10 when it launched at number 10 on the September 14th, 1968 chart on its way to number one. 
the group would debut twice more in the top 10 in the next two years with Get Back in 1969 and Let It Be in 1970. Both songs also hit number one. The Beatles would notch one more top 10 debut in 1995 when Free as a Bird, the band's first new single since the early 1970s, debuted at number 10 on the December 30th, 1995 chart, eventually peaking at number six. In case anyone was wondering why was 1995 a unique year where things started to debut in the top 10, we changed our rules in the middle of 1995 on when a song could debut on the chart. And I think the rule previously had been, I think a song had to have been commercially released at retail and then it would chart a week before the sales impact. Wow. So it would basically like, it would debut at like 40 and then jump to 10. Yeah. Which I don't understand that because I didn't work here at the time. Yeah. I just remember it being a very big deal. When they uh, changed it. When they changed it because it was like the floodgates opened and everyone realized they knew they, they could sort of construct huge debuts mm -hmm. and that became kind of an epidemic for the next three years mm -hmm. on the charts and that's why like a few weeks later Michael Jackson had the very first song to debut at number one with You Are Not Alone don't think for a second that Michael Jackson's team were probably thinking ha 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 how do we create this number one debut and you know sort of like you know polish Michael Jackson's chart legacy yep. which they did yep. I mean it was also a huge single yeah but then after that, you know, Mariah Carey and Boyz II Men and, and, you know, all Celine Dion and all sorts of artists all debuted at number one. And it got sort of progressively, quote unquote, worse because <laughs> um, we got to the point also in that sort of weird era in the late 1990s where uh, record labels started to just withhold the release of singles physically until they determined that they could find the best time to get them to debut. Right. So what would happen is, as an example, My Heart Will Go On from Celine Dion or Getting Jiggy With It, you know, from Will Smith. They released those songs to radio at the time, which was, you had radio and sales into the Hot 100. We didn't have streams yet. The song would build at radio for like three months, mm -hmm. become like the number one or top five most played song or most heard song on the radio. And then they basically the record label would just be sitting on, you know, couple hundred thousand singles. Wow. And they would wait to time it and then release them and send them all out to retail release shops. Release the singles. Release the singles. And then they would that get is wild. top 10 number, you know, top five number one debuts because they were very crafty. But, you know, unfortunately, the consumer was the one who kind of lost out here yeah. because the consumers, at that point, they had probably already bought Celine's album. Full album. Or Will's album because they wanted to get the single. So and then the record labels were like, let's release the the smallest number of physical singles in order just to get the number one debut and then get off the chart because right. they wanted to preserve the album sale instead. Ooh. And then that's why at the end of 1998, we changed the rules on the Hot 100 to allow airplay only tracks to there debut. We go. Um, anyway, I just <laughs> fell into a rabbit hole. There you have it. Um, that's a little trip down chart trivia memory lane about the first three top 10 debuts on the Hot 100 and how they were all by the same band, the Beatles. All right, we've reached the end of our big show, but we're not quite done yet yeah, because we haven't played Quiz Katie. Oh, man. It's a supersized show, everybody. 
It's a lot of Keith talking. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Katie. Yes. Um, we spell your name. You spell your name K-A-T-I-E. Yes. Has there ever been anyone named Katie with that spelling that is charted on the Hot 100? Oh, wow. Not that I can think of. Has there? There has. Wow. How the same person? How many? One person? More than one? One person with one song. One person, one song. And it was in 2014. 2014? Was it? Was she on American Idol? Was it Katie Stevens? No. Oh. It, this is from a humongous animated film. Oh, animated. I, will we hum it for you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. So there's a woman on the Frozen soundtrack named Katie? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So it's Do You Want to Build a Snowman? Yeah. And it is by Kristen Bell. Obviously. Yeah, duh. Agatha Lee and Katie Lopez. Oh, is Katie? Oh, is that their daughter? I believe that is a uh, 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 Robert and um, because there's the little girl version, Kristen and Robert Lopez, who, who did the Frozen. Music. Wow. So there's like the little girl the version little girl, of Anna. Well, I think it's the little girl's voice. Oh, you wow. Know, that you hear on it. Oh. So that went to number fifty-one in two thousand and fourteen. Wow. Yeah, never would have guessed that. But Katie, your full name is Catherine with a C. Correct. Why do you go by Katie with a K? Well, first of all, Keith. Not Kathy. First of all, uh, Prince, should, should Princess I, Kate Should is, I not be sharing this? Prin, no, it's fine. Okay. Princess Kate is Kate with a K and Catherine with a C. Catherine Middleton. Is that just sort of a normal thing for Catherines, I guess? I think so, but I'm, I'm named after an, a great aunt who was Catherine with a C, Kate with a K. Not, it's, not, not, it's not Catherine with a C, but Katie with a K. <laughs> it's like Liza with a C, not Liza with an S. Yes. Um, all right, um, so what about your full name, Catherine, with a C? Has anyone named Catherine ever been on the Hot 100? So nothing pops to mind immediately with Catherine. What number did this person get to? 55. Oh. It was a country hit. Oh. Yeah, I don't know a Catherine. So Tim McGraw had a song called Diamond Rings and Old Barstools. Nope. With Catherine Dunn. Okay. I wonder if that's in relation to Ronnie Dunn. Hmm. Um, hit number 55 in 2015. Okay, I do not know that song. Was, so did you also look into like um, like K.D. Lang and like K.T. Tunstall and No, I guess Kate I should Bush. have. I, ge- <laughs> I, I guess I should have. I was only looking up for, for Katie. Yeah, no, I, I and I didn't know and I still don't know. I probably couldn't tell you back what you just said. There are a lot more Katie's and Kate's in uh, movies, I guess, than there are in music. Catherine lots, Hepburn. Lots of Katie's. Katie, Katie Holmes. Holmes. Why is she the first one we think of? Because she goes by Katie. Like, you literally, right. there aren't that many Katie's. Katie um, Couric. All right. Yeah. yeah. What, was there a Katie on Grey's Anatomy? And the actress's name was Katie or the character's name was Katie? I mean, I don't Actress. know either. I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> Can we think of any other Katie's besides Couric and uh, Holmes? Katie. Yeah, I, can't, I don't think we can. It was just crazy because, like, meanwhile, every class I was in from, like, kindergarten to senior year, I had, like, minimum five Katie's. You know, everybody was named Katie, like, my age. Well, I wonder why that is. Was there a Katie boom. What year were you born in? Maybe it's a isn't a, maybe it's a the way we were reference. My, my mom does love Robert Redford. The way we were was in the 1970s. You weren't born then, though. Exactly, I was born after, so she would know the reference to name me, Katie. I bet you there's lots of um, like when like Dynasty and Melrose Place and all those things were popular, like with really cr- creative names. Mm. Like how many people were named Alexis or Crystal? Well, there's a bunch of Game of Thrones names out there now, so probably a lot. Like. 
Aria. Just people named Daenerys. Aria got really big. Danny. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But they didn't call her Danny on the show, did they? Yeah. Really? I mean, but, maybe we just called her that. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure John is a really popular name too. For snow. <laughs> well, uh, probably Kit. There's so many Jacobs, and uh, like after Twilight too, Twilight Jacob and Edward and Bella. Oh, well, Bella. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I wonder how many people. If we if we <laughs> tra- down a real <laughs> if, if we extend this to music, I'm like, I bet you there's lots of people being named Taylor now after Taylor Swift. Oh sure, yeah. There's probably a lot more women named Taylor, girls named Taylor versus previously. That Taylor Swift, she's a trendsetter. <laughs> um, and right. she's named after James Taylor. She is? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think I knew that. Which, how great is that? Her parents named her after, like, an amazing singer-songwriter, and then she became one. And then she got to sing with James. Like, James right. Taylor joined her on stage That's her on namesake. her tour. That's her namesake. Man. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is a long <laughs> show. What song should we go out on? Oh, my gosh. We have talked about so much. So much. I don't even know where to begin. Why don't we go out on Do You Want to Build do you a Snowman? Build snowman? <laughs> One of the it's songs. July. Or no, it's August. Yeah, I know. It's August. <laughs> That's fine. Um, all right. We'll do that. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Do you want to build a snowman? Or ride our bike around the halls? I think some company's overdue. I've started talking to the pictures on the wall.